Welcome to the Working Dog Depot podcast with your hosts, Rich Harden and Howard Young. All right. Howard Young, how are you, sir? Hanging in there. How about you? Well, first, let's say Happy New Year. Yes. Absolutely. Made it, made it through another one in, in the first podcast of the new year. Yeah, we were on a little bit of a hiatus between the holidays and health issues. It's, uh, I don't know, there's still a lot of sick people running around here. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we've, been, we've been fortunate. We've, uh, we've uh, skirted it so far. Good. Tonight, we have a gentleman that uh, we both know, and we've, um, we've both been on the podcast that he co-hosts. And uh, consider him a friend, and it's nice to be able to bring him in and ask him some questions. And tonight we have Ted Summers from Torch Lake Canine, and also known from Working Dog Radio. Hey, welcome, Ted. What's up, guys? How are you? Well, I know I haven't seen you or talked to you since <laughs> Hold the Line Conference, so it's been a minute. Yeah, it's been it's been a minute. It's weird to be on this end, <laughs> not not doing not doing the intro, <laughs> not not pre planning, and Eric and I looking at each other, be like, who's going to do it? <laughs> so yeah, what's it's the first one of the year though, huh? It, it is. is. Um, yeah. We've we've just had a hard time getting getting it together. So uh, I feel like the, the the year is only really fifty one weeks. That week between Christmas and New Year's is just worthless. Like I don't know, I we. I didn't do hardly anything. I mean, we worked a bunch of green dogs, but like we didn't do much of anything, much of pets and green dogs, and that's it. So for the folks that don't know you, tell tell us what it is you do. So I'm the co-owner at Torchlight Canine here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, police service dogs and pets. Um, we did about 80, I think we did 88 dogs last year, and I did about 100, and I think Alicia counted it up. I did 119 handler schools last year for 2023. Uh, we're on track this year to come up over a hundred dogs, which is kind of mind numbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously if you're listening to this, you probably have heard me on working dog radio as the co-host and one of the producers there, along with Alicia and Logan and, and of course, Eric. Um, and then I also am the co-owner and training director for HRD police canine, which is the seminar scenario based training. If you've ever been to any of the conferences, hold the line, or, no, I guess it's blue line. I can't say that anymore. Blue line and hits you've seen me do that or if you've ever been to an hrd we've done them all over the country and we're getting booked up for 2024 and then i recently started a 501 because i'm not busy enough for um, oklahoma canine teams called the oil capital spelled with an a uh, like money oil capital canine fund here in oklahoma so yeah (laughs) <laughs> on the canine side, that's what I do. What's 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 your 501 going to focus on? So uh, Oklahoma is kind of a weird thing, and uh, it's kind of a weird state in terms of, uh, I don't think we have any unique problems here. Our, our population is dispersed. Uh, we have Tulsa and Oklahoma City and Lawton, which are kind of like our three largest cities in those metro areas, have about 85% of the population outside of that. The rest of the state is kind of a misnomer. There's 70. I, I was at the Oklahoma Sheriff's Association with the meeting with their director uh, right before New Year's. And we have 77 counties here in Oklahoma. Um, 22 of the 77 sheriffs in this state, just based on their salary alone, qualify for SNAP benefits, which is oh, mind-boggling wow. to me. I think everyone listening to this and you two know that um, law enforcement is – we have a problem right now finding qualified candidates that are willing to work and that's not going away. I don't know of many departments in the country that are fully staffed, even with obscene 
pay. Like if you go to Texas and Southern California, like they're paying guys a ton, even here in Oklahoma. And we're giving people, you know, eight and $10,000 signing bonuses, even sometimes more than that. And they're having trouble finding qualified candidates. So to compound that, there's also a budget gap issue. You know, the summer of love with the George Floyd thing and the defund the police movement um, gained some traction. And we had a city in Oklahoma that was one of the nine in the country that actually went ahead and pulled the trigger and defunded Norman, Oklahoma. They've since reversed. Uh, it's where University of Oklahoma is at. But, and I used to have a dog on Norman PD, but it's, a, uh, it's an interesting time. So we haven't had the guy on the podcast yet. In fact, I want to, you guys may know him. His name's John Rux. He's from Pasco County Sheriff's Office. Great dude. I think he handled a dog at like Lincoln's inauguration. He's been around for a long time. <laughs> He's finally retired, but they brought a bunch of dudes up to um, Tennessee, I think for the HRD. Um, and they published a study that is out there. I don't think the general public has it because it has a bunch of sensitive information. And anyway, uh, about how much time saving the dogs actually provide in terms of getting calls closed. And it was set up over, I think, six years and 64,000 calls for service and the averaging of like what type of call it was and whatever, so how much faster the calls closed. But what it amounted to is that the dogs are actually a life or a, a money and time saving tool, regardless if you're actually getting them out or not. So it, that study kind of proves what we all know anecdotally. Um, we all kind of feel, but it put like really like quantitative numbers to it. So what the 501 is going to do for Oklahoma teams only right now is we're going to provide dogs, single or dual purpose, to departments that are under 60, which compromise, which if I did the math correctly, it's about 87% of the departments in Oklahoma are under 60 sworn officers. And then we'll provide 75% funding for departments under 170 officers, which will cover about 97% of the state. So Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma City PD, Oklahoma County, uh, which is where Oklahoma City is, Tulsa and Tulsa County PD won't qualify, troopers won't qualify, Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics won't qualify, um, like the huge juggernaut state agencies and city agencies won't qualify. But other than that, it will. We're also going to bring in people that instruct at Blue Line and HITS and all these other conferences that a lot of these officers don't have the option to go to because you know tickets are i don't even remember how much they are for hits or blowing like 500 bucks i want to say i think uh i just looked it up hold the line is 330 for the okay. conference but still yeah. yeah but it's in myrtle beach so i mean if you're yeah. at, from a department in central oklahoma and say you work at a sheriff's office that has 30 deputies they're not going to let you go i mean they might but they're not gonna, not going to pay for it you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it on your own time, which I see a lot of canning guys do. So what I'm going to do is bring the instructors like you. I'm like, you know, Stanbro, Rigney, all those guys in. Um, and we'll pay for it. Just I'll pay to fly you in, stay wherever, depending on who's hosting it. And then if you're, even if you're not an Oklahoma team at this point, we're just going to pay for you. to like, You can just come. Just show up and uh, I'll write all the cleat hours for it so you'll get hours to go. And so it gives the Oklahoma teams access to the training that I think they desperately need here or that we desperately need here. And um, so it's kind of my way to kind of push the the ball down the field for Oklahoma teams. Um, we've kind of made some changes recently to the state standards uh, starting now. Uh, this this year, this week, I guess, is the first week where our state is requiring, we are one of the few states that has a state mandatory t- state certification, um, but now they're requiring a minimum of a four-week handler school to even get the letter to test with the certifiers, which I think is great. I mean, I've been doing that for years anyway, but so yeah, that's what the 501 is kind of focused on, but God bless. It is a, it is a 
process to set one of those things up. Yes, it is. So, before so before our- COVID, it was a little easier, but it's it's uh it's very difficult yeah. to get it going. Yeah. So you mentioned HRD. We hosted one pre-COVID mm-hmm. 2019, and we we had a really good time. Yes. The, the guys still talk about, and they they brought it up numerous times about having you all back for that. I liked it because all I had to do is I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> that's, what, that's what most guys say. Like we were in San Jose and they said the same thing. They were like, oh, this is great. All I have to do is show up and just get to run my dog. And like, this is awesome. Like you guys take care of everything. You find the decoys, you find lunch, everything. We just show up and do dog stuff. But yeah, that's, that's a big, uh, and Ray and I have gotten it down to, uh, an art form. Now we've got them pretty, uh, mm-hmm. we've got it down to, uh, we get they run pretty smooth now compared to, you know, six years ago now i guess it's been longer mm-hmm. than that when we started so yeah we would yeah we'd love to come back out yeah i think we would have a much bigger turnout for whatever reason we didn't have a huge turnout but i think we would have a big one this time i was actually looking at video footage from that one. Oh, clover, there's some good video footage well yeah clover broke the toilet with <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know when this yeah we had stuff. some particularly hard dogs at that time and yeah, yeah they, were, they were nice yeah so one of the things that we d- wanted to talk about is case law. And I, I we had a little bit of this discussion before we started in that. That is that I don't know how many folks outside of canine handlers or trainers that really understand that much, if not all, of what we do with the dogs is really predicated on what the law will allow. So pretty much everything that is done is is based on some sort of case law. And the case law, some of it is fairly old. Some of it is, you know, ever-changing. The joke is always that you don't want to be the person that's changing case law. So, um, (laughs) but we do want to. (laughs) uh, I have some friends that um, may or may not be mentioned by name in some federal cases. So uh, we won't talk about them, though. But uh, they were good ones, though. So I don't, I wouldn't mind. But yeah. And I know that you make this part of your presentation to your handlers going through handler school. Can you kind of synopsize or give us an idea of, of like the things that you, you feel are pertinent to cover? Hey folks, we're proud to have Hold the Line Canine Conference as a supporter and sponsor of the Working Dog Depot podcast. Joe Lukowski and staff are already securing vendors and presenters for the seminar in April. That's April 9th, 10th, and 11th in a brand new location. That's right. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We are especially excited about that. It's going to cut our travel time in half. And there's nothing like being in the Carolinas in early April. Let's hold the line, Canine Conference. We're very much looking forward to being there and hope to see you all there. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I guess we should call this, you guys should call this episode like marginal legal advice. Um, I'm not an attorney. (laughs) Uh, much to my parents' disappointment, you know, I own all these businesses and whatever else. And my dad still asks if I'm going to get a real job someday. I took the bar and thankfully dodged that bullet, got into law school and said, nah, I'm not going to do this. And so now I do what I do. I'm covered in tattoos and get to play with dogs all day. So that said, uh, I've always kind of had an interest in it. And I joke with administrators and handlers, and it's really not a joke. I, you know, I mean, the only the only reason canines exist is, to, and this is the joke, is that to mess up people's Fourth Amendment, either through illegal searches or illegal seizures, if you're on the plaintiff attorney side. So all the case law that we have surrounding dogs that's that doesn't deal with administrators or which or payments for handlers, which is also admins, deals with Fourth Amendment issues, searches and seizures. And it a lot of what we do 
doesn't make sense to people outside of canine, even to other law enforcement officers. Like there's a ton of people that, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of that, even police officers that when they're confronted with some of this information that doesn't make sense to them, they're like, why? And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, it's, it, this has already been decided. It was decided in this circuit and whatever else. And this is the decision that came out. And you'd have to assume that if the same series of facts happened in another district in the country, that the outcome would be the same. If not, we have a problem. And that's when the big boys in Washington get involved and nobody likes that. So, yeah, I mean, and so I like to give my handlers in school kind of a basis for the reason you're searching and the theory behind how we get into the car, whether it's or into the whatever we're doing, whether it's relevant to the it's specific to the dogs or not. And same thing with the um, use of force side on the seizure part. So um, I even go all the way back to like pre Graham and how they used to determine what an acceptable or unacceptable use of force was and give them, which is the Roshan case, which gives the foundation of Graham and, you know, the Supreme Court rightly kind of steered the boat back and gave us a way to measure it that was objective across all districts. And it really, part of form, you know, those justices are smarter than we are. And they... And the people they surround themselves with can, I don't necessarily think they can see the future, but they can definitely see the unintended consequences of their decisions before we, long before we can, which sometimes is good and sometimes it's not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and so for my guys that are on the side of the road at 11 o'clock at night running a dog, and it's super important to them because it's super important to me that they're updated on the most relevant because we've had just in the last two years have had some cases come through both federal and state courts that boggle my mind and how they reach their some of their decisions. And then so, you know, I want, like you said, Howard, I want my handlers to not be on the wrong side and their name to be mentioned and it'd be good case law <laughs> and not be right. like, yo, this is the reason we have this problem. Like the curve versus West Palm Beach thing, which I just call the shit show, which is, you know, and that's kind of a foundational case too, for a lot of um, stuff that we do. It's one of the most heavily cited cases in canine specific to dogs and on the seizure side anyway. So yeah, I like to kind of go way back and it is a long presentation and it's not necessarily death by case law because I explain it and break it down, but I like to give them a good understanding. And what I want out of that, is I don't necessarily, they don't need to recall like the case specifically, but even if they are presented with something that is not normal or ordinary in the normal course of running a dog in any utility, and they're like, I think there's something about this that I remember. Even if they send me a text, they're like, yo, this is what's going on. I'm like, yeah, hold on. And I'll get them the case. Like right then, like I had a handler text me the other day and said, I stopped a guy on a bike, a pedal, bike and he was like do i have to run the dog on the bike so we had a back and forth discussion and you know and i sent him some cases that are relative to his state because they have a state level case and then some for his judicial district so like for instance right now my handler school i've got 14 handlers and i have handlers from from three judicial districts in this class aside from three different states so um it becomes like so the presentation is a little messy so <laughs> i, I kind of separate it out for each one um, and the state-specific stuff and the district-specific stuff is not that big of a difference. But yeah, so we have some states here that where marijuana is still like illegal, illegal, like Kansas. Mm -hmm. Well, this just decriminalized. Then we've got Oklahoma teams where it's medicinal. And then uh, we've got a guy from, we've got an Oak Arkansas handler and an Indiana handler. So um, It's yeah. still illegal in North Carolina. However, 
there yeah, are a lot of uh, DAs that are not going to charge. And that's the that's what they're doing. And so it's been decriminalized, but it's in this gray area, right? So the the thing that I kind of remind administrators and stuff was, you know, I mean, we and for a bunch of for a group of people, and namely lawyers is who I'm talking about, that are super specific on word use, you would think that they would be hyper aware of the difference between regulated and legal because I, I talked to somebody last week and they're like, you know, marijuana is legal. I'm like, it's not legal anywhere. It's regulated. Right. And it's right. still scheduled. And there's a fundamental difference. Like my seven year old niece can go into a convenience store and buy Gatorade because it's legal. She cannot go in and buy marijuana, alcohol, prescription drugs, tobacco because she's underage or doesn't have a prescription. So it's regulated. It's a huge difference. And with that regulation comes a lot of statutes that have to be enforced at the state and or federal level, depending on what it is. So, you know, I think people are kind of like, oh, is it get out of jail free card when it becomes legal? I'm like, no, it's not legal. It's regulated. Okay. And now that it's regulated, part of form, leave it to the government to fuck up anything they touch. Like now it is a problem. And well, not necessarily a problem, but I mean, it, it still gets you access to vehicles unless you're in certain states. Eric and I just, I think we published that episode already where we talked about, we had a long deal about that. And I listed the states that where you can and can't get into the car just based on the odor of marijuana alone. So, yeah. Nice. I, I think they're looking for second uh, indicators now. Yeah. I, I always do dog plus one, right? right. It's just right. like the dog is not the end all be all. And you know, in my handler schools, we focus a lot on the handling, change the behavior, train final responses, what you say, what you don't say, how you say it. Um, the advanced like interdiction stuff is not my thing. There are guys like Kenny, Red Ninja, Red Ninja dude, um, Anthony Moore, who we've I've had on the podcast, is with a cedar interdiction canine guy for the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, and he is a master at that kind of stuff and developing reasonable suspicion. We before we even get to that point, so you know, I I kind of like pump the brakes a lot, even though I do what I do or we all do the same thing. Like I'm, I know that the dog is not like the magic key and yeah. it's, it's just N plus one. It's like the culmination of a lot of things, but which I remind people a lot about too, on the detection side. It's not, they're not like, it's not a get out of, it's not a get into the car free card. Well, I think, you know, all this is, is very, very important, especially when you, you consider the, the young guy or gal that's just gone through school, they've invested all this time and energy They've got this fantastic tool now. Now you come home and you got to figure out how do I use it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it's pretty pretty obvious, you know, in a tracking situation. But but that's that's a very small fraction of what you're going to be able to do with this dog. Yeah, and you know, I, I say this a lot. I do a specific integration seminar here, and I do it other places in other Oklahoma, but where we take non-patrol people or non-canine people, I'm sorry, that are just normal deputies or police officers that don't are there are not in and there are not in the canine specialty. And we teach them how to integrate with the with the dog versus even for tracking and apprehensions and even on traffic stops with detection runs. Um, how they integrate there, what they do and don't do, what they should and shouldn't do. And it's always interesting because, you know, it takes it takes a village to to train these dogs, right? Like they're bred in Europe. They're raised by whoever they're shipped over here and then they get their hands on, you know, they've got how many sets of hands and eyes on them here. And, you know, when they leave me and go to work there, it takes a village to advocate for them too. So I find a lot of times handlers that are proactive about integrating their work, their shift guys with them 
are typically successful because they're the ones advocating for the dog as well. Mm-hmm. And then if you've got administrators buying in, you know, even if they were former handlers or whatever, then you have even higher levels of success. So it, it takes a village to raise them. It takes a village to train them and it takes a village to deploy them to be successful. But that's very common for any like tool in law enforcement. It's not a like, it's not singular to the dog. I will say that the dog requires quite a bit more, you know, training on how they work and what they work or what they do and what they don't do with non-patrol <laughs> people. But it's not some kind of crazy excessive amount. It's not like, you know, weeks of training or anything. I mean, my integration seminar is just a day and it's mm-hmm. not even that, like, it's not even that crazy. So uh, it is super basic. So those, I think once you have people buying in, you become much more successful, right? You know, and I don't think we're even going to get into the whole allowing canine guys to do canine things and using the tools as opposed to versus, you know, and that's a staffing issue and there's a politics at play in every department and every agency and everything else. But that's a huge factor as well. One of my handlers is fighting with that right now. I mean, he's out, you know, serving calls, you know, answering calls for service for, you know, like suspicious activity and which can turn into a canine call. But I mean, that shit doesn't necessarily, you know, that's not the best utilization of that tool. For sure. Yeah. It's funny. You, you touched on what I have always called canine 101. And that's, and that has to do with leave the dog part out of it. What are your relationships like with your peers? How are you perceived by your peers? And now that you have this specialized tool, what is, how do you carry yourself around the, this tool that you have? I have seen it go both ways. I've seen where guys got very cocky. Uh, began to question other officers and basically alienate them. And then I've seen guys that that saw the big picture, that understood that you need all those other people to be successful. You want them to call you. You want them to want them to call you. That's right. right. So That's right. relationships are key. And uh, it's it's unfortunate. I've seen guys step all over themselves because they had very poor relationships with their peers. But the guys that again, get the big picture and, and show up on a scene and want to be helpful and, and recognize their coworkers as being a part of the, the success that when you do experience success, they tend to be much, much more successful. Hey folks, we're excited to tell you about one of our new sponsors. That's Ray Allen Manufacturing. Ray Allen has been making canine related products since 1948. Many of you recognize the name Ray Allen with being synonymous with quality canine gear. Both Rich and I have been ordering equipment from them for years. My now adult sons have shared with me that some of their childhood memories involved seeing Ray Allen catalogs at home. That's right, folks, catalogs that came in the mail before the internet. Over the past few years, we've gotten to know some of the faces behind the scenes and have come to appreciate them for who they are. We've also enjoyed the banner back and forth. I've been the subject of at least one prank. It's relationships like these that are icing on top of the cake when it comes to doing business with a company. When searching for canine-related gear, seek out a trusted name in the industry. That's Ray Allen Manufacturing. For a 10% discount, use the WDD10 discount code. Thank you. That's one thing that Eric harps on. He says it best, um, and of course I've adopted it. Um, Eric and I steal stuff from each other all the time, but he tells, and I tell my handlers this too, never say no. I mean... You know, especially on the radio, like if you're on the radio, like don't ever say no. And it's usually like evidence recovery or tracking or something, right? Where they're like, well, how long? I'm like, don't ever say no, because you're going to keep saying no. And they're just going to stop asking you. Right. And don't ever say no. And, you know, multiple times, multiple times last year, 
within the last couple of months, I've had handlers say, Hey, I'm headed to a call. It's, this is what's going on. Uh, it was a track that was like this much age and it had been raining. Do you think you're going to be successful? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you're probably going to be successful. And they didn't find the person because they'd been picked up by the homeboys, but they found a bunch mm-hmm. of evidence that helped tie sure. them and then found evidence that had, that pointed to other people that they didn't realize that were there as well. So, I mean, in my mind, they wouldn't have found that evidence had the dog not been there. So yeah, it's absolutely a success. And if you're, so, if you're disliked enough, trust me, there are people that like to see you fail. Oh, oh, believe me. They <laughs> yeah. love to see fail. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, I know. Well, before you go down that rabbit hole, though, on, on, on people letting you fail, <laughs> back up this a second, Ted, when you talked about administration, staffing, canine, you know, you just mentioned that in Oklahoma, we have a, a large uh, array of uh, police departments that are under 50 officers. Yeah. You know, so how, how do they, how do you get those guys to justify a budget for canine and then saying, just do canine things. So I think a lot of that kind of falls down. I, I don't think anyone in those departments gets a dog and sends a handler to school for a month and thinks when he comes back that it's going to be dog stuff only um, with smaller agencies like that. Now, a lot of it's area dependent. We actually have a lot of rural areas here that do have a lot of violent crime and those dogs get a lot of work and it's obviously it's all drug related. Plus we have the extra layer here with all of our native American stuff going on, which is another whole deal that you want to talk about crazy case law that only applies to half of this state, nowhere else in the country. That is wild that, you know, I think what I do is I motivate my handlers, my young handlers to do good work and to be available for work and once there is success and once there is a documented track record of successes and the handler advocating and then helping having other agencies, especially if you work at a sheriff's department that has like a large jurisdiction with other cities, or if you work for a city that has a small sheriff's department or, you know, I mean, like for instance, you know, Tulsa is a huge sheriff's or two city and it's a huge department, but we also have a very large sheriff's department that doesn't have a single dog. And they use TPDs guys all the time. And there's various reasons for that. But um, I think once the administrators see like fairly quickly that, and especially like supervisors see that the dogs are successful, because at the end of the day, even if politics are involved, like there is some, there is some very much tribalism going off and we're on the same team and we're still want to catch bad, get bad guys. And, you know, I tell my handlers to shut their mouth and do their work and not argue with people, not argue with supervisors, and when you get the opportunity to do the work and do it right and do it good or do it well, excuse me, do it well and then follow up and go out of your way to do good work. And then, which is just in general, like I kind of operate that way anyway, but I find that that, that work ethic is much more impressionable on administrators and supervisors than just, I have this dog. You should give me this. You should mm-hmm. give me this work. And when I say that, if, if you're listening to this, you're a plaintiff attorney, I'm not saying go out and generate work. It's not what I'm that fucking, I'm not saying that because I've been accused of that in the past, which I don't care, but it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you take it as it comes and you, you make it successful. But yeah, I think once they learn that the dogs are a huge resource and a huge asset and they can save a ton of time and a ton of money, especially on kind of like the mid-sized departments anywhere from 20 to like 75, 80, every 80 officers, deputies, the dogs are like 
can't well i mean there's a department that's coming up next week to buy dogs and they have three dogs and i think each one of their handlers has pulled over a million dollars out of um out of the road this year Mm -hmm. so and i'm obviously not advocating you know for civil asset i mean it is what it is it's not dogs aren't the only way to get civil asset forfeitures but they do have a large contribution in that so um and they do collect and stop a lot of violent crime and a lot of crime related to narcotics and human trafficking and all the other shit. So I think, you know, and a lot of that too has to do with the administration themselves. Um, I have a fairly local sheriff's department here that um, frankly is just not interested in doing law enforcement. Um, They don't arrest people. They don't give a shit about drugs. They don't give a shit about violent crime. They don't even run the jail. Um, The jail is run by a for-profit corporation. So they're just... uh, city the county commissioners are known criminals or have criminals in their family that are actively selling narcotics in the county so they're just not real motivated to do work which sucks so and they don't have a dog which i don't really care they don't want one but i do have four dogs in that county that are very active that are part of um state and federal task force um, that are super successful. So they're still doing work despite what the sheriff's office wants. So yeah, and, and, and it goes back to do work when it comes to you and do it well and do it professionally. And and the work will come to you 100%. I think there are a very large number. In fact, all of the teams that I work with do do not do solely dog related. They're, they're basically a patrolman with, a, with an additional yeah. tool. And, and that's rare. Like, I mean, when you... And, when you get to like, of course, I don't know if you guys had Gooseby on or not, but I mean, you know, he's yeah. from like, you know, their budget is in the billions. So, and you know, Michael tell you that he's super grateful where he came from and he doesn't look a gift horse in the mouth. And those guys only do canine stuff. Right. But LAPD mm-hmm. is a massive organization. Same thing with LA County. Right. Like if you talk to Daryl Gaunt, the same thing. So uh, I've talked to Troy Casey at, at Boston, like all those canine guys, and there's enough work for them to do just canine stuff. Um, and there's enough staffing for them because, you know, I mean, LAPD, when they have a, a problem, what is their 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 answer to everything is to throw resources at it. Like that's their answer. And when you come from a resource rich environment, that's easy. So and at that point, canine is not really about resources um, and about saving time and money for them. It's about saving lives, uh, which it is for smaller departments, too. But they have a little bit different focus um, when they talk about dogs. But. Um, it is rare. I mean, even if you look across the country, like people that are SWAT guys, there are very, very few people in this country that are a dedicated 100% SWAT handler or SWAT operator all the time. There's just not that many of them. So, but I, I think when you get as an average across the country, most of the time dudes are doing those calls and are getting called to those calls. And when you have administrators or, you know, supervisors like sergeants and captains and lieutenants, like wanting and directing other supervisors to kick those calls to them. Um, and even getting dispatched to buy in, like I've had of a county that here kind of locally where my handler went in and <laughs> literally changed their, their like call numbers in their like little computing and si- their like little call system to let them know that the dog was on shift. So like it's their number plus canine. So they know, yeah, we have a dog on call or whatever. So they don't even, I mean, cause there's more than one dog in the county, but you know, they have two on the sheriff's office and they got a couple within the county. And so, because they were calling dogs from neighboring counties when they would need them and they would have a dog on shift and they're like, oh, we didn't even know. So, mm-hmm. which is wild, but it happens. So it requires, like I said, a buy-in from everybody and kind of like an understanding of what the tool does. 
other than just cause liability, which is what I think everybody think dogs do anyway. It's just a huge walking liability, which is not true. But I mean, yeah. Well, why do you think uh, that mindset has come into play that the dog is a liability, especially Uh, from above? I think it's left over from the second Bush and Clinton administration guys. Um, not to pick on you guys, but guys like that are your age and slightly younger that are still in the leadership positions in canine. Thankfully, you know, in 2023, four now, 2024, like things have advanced. Like we're really good at training police dogs now. Back in the day, like we like did, we're not. Um, and we've had a lot of case law that has come out since then that has kind of pushed us in the direction and there's been a filtering out of a lot of things that have happened. Plus the advent of body worn cameras and dash cam and technology has, has increased and has helped. I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to say helped accountability, but it's definitely helped with the, like the, the paper pushing side of, of canine. But uh, I think back in the day, like in the Kerr versus West Palm beach days, like Florida was wild back in the nineties, man. Uh, go talk to Rigney. He'll tell you some crazy stories that probably shouldn't air. And I tagged him something the other day about a flashlight. So like they had a mag light that was, you know, like the big four D cell yes. thing. <laughs> and they're like, you know, canine handlers from the eighties looking at the new guys with their little like surefires that have 10 times the power telling flashlight stories. And the new canine handlers are like, their flashlights aren't that big. Like, how are you using it like that? <laughs> <laughs> so seen one <laughs> right six right i mean so it, i sent it to eric and he was like oh, i feel super attacked so it, <laughs> it, I, I think it came from that era and that was the running and gunning era of the wild west of like canine and you can see it in the case law i was around working in law enforcement at that point but i was up in a very small department up in colorado I didn't really consider myself a cop and I was training avalanche dogs. I mean, it was, wasn't like, you know, and there was no fucking crime where I was at. I mean, like it was, you know, Hunter S Thompson lived there. Like that was the only thing he was shooting his neighbor every once in a while. But outside of that, I, and I think that's where that came, came from, right? You had dogs that were just completely defensively trained where buzzsaws unleashes. They fucking nuke everybody. Dogs didn't out. They were, had terrible bites. Tandlers had terrible decision-making skills. There was no scenario-based training right? There was nothing. It was just basically buying sport dogs from Europe that were dickheads and sent them over to the United States and cut them loose and let them bite people. Like, and that's, I, I think that's where that mentality came from and they're still scared and they haven't like gotten, you know, I mean, that's back when the Crown Vic was around too, man. So that's when everybody, you know, diesel mags and, you know, or mag lights and fucking Crown Vicks and dangerous dogs. And that's what they still think. So I, I, you know, and I, when you present like modern stuff to them, they're like, oh, okay. Like I've had, you know, a bunch of administrators out that are from that generation and they're there while we've got what I would consider some super sharp dogs working. And I'm like, yeah, this dog's dual purpose. And they're like, oh, he is? They're like, yeah, and he's working odor and he's not trying to destroy anybody. He's not trying to kill anybody, even though he's got more bodies than COVID. And, but, you know, I'm, he's social. He's social in the sense that he can work on other people and not just destroy everything. And they see that and it kind of puts their mind at ease. But I think that still kind of operates a lot in the back of people's minds, like bad bites, which, you know, for me is kind of interesting because the, the two things that they give every brand new sheriff's deputy or police officer in this country is a gun and a car. Like you get out of the academy, you do your FTO phase and you got a gun and a car. You have two means of lethal force, right? And sometimes they'll give you a taser. And I have handlers that have killed people with tasers. So 
the whole misnomer about creating liability i'm like it's not that it's not the it's not the tool it's not the dog like 100 percent. which handler selection is a huge deal which i don't even know if we're going to talk about it but that's a a, a massively important aspect but I, you know i kind of try and you know make their tummies feel better when i tell them i say look you know i mean you need to select a good dog and select a good trainer and select a good handler and you'll be fine as long as you do your job and supervise them they'll be fine you'll be fine i promise well, I would say a lot of the, or at least from my experience, the bad bites have been just poor judgment on the part of the handler. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how often do we hear it or have heard it, or I still hear it today? Like we have this pre, this fixation on outs, right? Like outs on dual purpose dogs. Anyway, uh, we have a fixation on outs. Um, to this day, there is no case law in this country where somebody lost a qualified immunity hearing based on the dog not outing. There is some time on bite stuff, which we can talk about if you want, but a lot of it is, and I tell people that I'm like, I don't care how clean the out is if the dog should have never been there in the first place. Like, it doesn't matter. So like, I mean, and I kind of tell them like, once you're bit, you're bit, you're not going to get any more bit. Um, there is some cases that talk about continued encouragement, which is another nineties thing. Like where handlers and Howard, you've been to an HRD with me where I, Eric and I yell at people for saying good boy. And that constant reaffirmation shit looks terrible on body cam. So, you know, we've started training handlers differently. We've, I've been doing it for several years or for the, what, six or eight years now, but I think, and that's another '90s holdover. Um, I still see guys do it to this day, like new handlers, guys I didn't train. And they'll say, you know, they're 27 years old, they have a banger street sweeper, and they're in a scenario, and I'm asking them to treat it, and they're like, "Good boy, good boy," and I'm like, "Shut the fuck up, dude!" <laughs> like, you need to. And I, I make them record it on their body cam. I was like, "I go watch this," and they get back to me, they're like, "That looks terrible." I'm like, "I know it does. <laughs> it looks like a gang initiation, dude. It looks like you're jumping somebody <laughs> into the gang. Like, we're not. That's not what this is about anymore." So, um, that's, yeah. And we don't have any like straight up cases on that. Well, there is some about continued encouragement, but it, it definitely is not a good look. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. So is for a, for a new handler, just ready to hit the street. What would you say on the, on the apprehension side? What would you, what case law would you want them to, to be mindful of? Let me tell you about our newest sponsor, Gold Coast Canine. Gold Coast 20-acre modern canine training facility is located in sunny Southern California and was established in 1991. Gold Coast owner Rodney Spicer was bitten by the Schutzenbug in the mid-80s, and by the year 2000, he titled over 20 different dogs in a variety of working dog sports, from Schutzen to protection sports. This led him to eventually work with police dogs and began selling them to vendors. In the mid-90s, Gold Coast began selling dogs directly to police agencies. To date, Gold Coast supplies dogs to over 100 law enforcement agencies and provides training to 27 agencies for regularly scheduled maintenance training in both patrol and detection. Gold Coast has founded innovative canine courses such as canine stress inoculation, prior deployments, and reality-based detection training. They've also introduced biometrics in the selection and evaluation period in order to increase the likelihood of success. Gold Coast developed a covert detection program for the largest technology company in the world. They also provide detection services to entertainment theme parks, hotels, and special events. When you think Gold Coast Canine, think reliable, experienced, and innovative. Check out goldcoastcanine.com for more information on your next single or dual-purpose canine. Also, check out their course schedule, 
merchandise, home protectors, and additional services. Follow Gold Coast Canine on all social media platforms. For a 10% discount on merchandise, use the GCK910 discount code. First and foremost is got to be um, Graham versus Connor. And, yes. and I don't mean when I say Graham versus Connor, I don't mean like knowing the three prongs granted you have to know the three prongs right like i get it you have to know like the crime you have to know like the propensity for violence or and like the amount of effort requiring to flee or whatever right how much of a danger they are so everyone knows what the three prongs are but for dual purpose guys they need to understand it a little deeper than that and kind of understand because and everybody listening to this is going to know what i say when i say this right and this is another holdover from the 90s how many times have you heard handlers say, as long as I've got a felony, I'm good? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Right? Well, and the trick here is that um, federal courts don't recognize felony misdemeanor. They just don't. They recognize and they they run the evaluation under Graham, right? So because like, for instance, in my jurisdiction and 10th Circuit, which is fairly large, I mean, shit, Idaho is in the same judicial district as Colorado and Oklahoma and New Mexico. So you have Albuquerque, New Mexico, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Amarillo, and Boise, Idaho, and Denver, Colorado, and Salt Lake City, Utah. Oh, no, no. yeah, they're not. Yeah, they are, they're, they're in the same judicial district. <laughs> now, I understand. Like, So wrap your head around that for a second. So in, because of that, like, it gets kind of like, because, for instance, when I do my admin schools and I have it, I was like, how many of your policies say you have to have a felony to buy it? And they're like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, so in Oklahoma... Uh, because we, you know, meth is our state bird. Stealing catalytic converters is a felony. And I'm like, you're going to bite people for stealing catalytic converters? And everyone's face in the room turns like white, like the blood drains out of their face. And I can hear tumbles, tummies grumbling, right? And they're like, well, <laughs> no. And I'm like, checks. Exactly, right? <laughs> so, and that's the thing. So, and I say, rather than felony or misdemeanor, rather than focusing on the classification of the crime, within Graham, you need to focus on the nature of the crime, right? So I typically, when I train handlers, I'm like, typically crimes against people or crimes involving a weapon, you're generally okay on those just because, you know, the things that happen that lead to those and the things that lead people to run from that kind of shit kind of it, they're generally going to pass a Graham standard test for a bite during qualified immunity hearing without a problem. And there are some isolated things that I, you know, kind of hand that I select that I push out of that, like gun calls or not dog calls and that kind of shit. And there's some, some special cases that go with that, even within the 10th circuit that are kind of applied across the rest of the country, but Graham versus Connor and how it applies to canine specifically. And then the classification versus nature of the crime, like you said, right? Like nobody in is listening to this is not going to argue that Bernie Madoff was not a serious criminal, Right. I mean, the dude's in prison for so long, he's going to die there. His parole officer hasn't even been born yet, if he lives that long. But he was such a danger that when the FBI went to arrest him, they just stuck him in the back of a, a suburban with no handcuffs on. Like, that's how dangerous Bernie Madoff was. So if we're going on the analysis of as long as I've got a felony, I can bite him, like, they should have bitten Bernie Madoff, or they could have. And they, they no, they couldn't have. <laughs> like they just couldn't have. And granted, he didn't satisfy the other two. Um, the other side of that is in Oklahoma. We have, oh, I think it's a problem across the rest of the country too. But um, child pornography, while while the actual possession of child pornography itself is not a violent crime, 
the manufacturer definitely is, and I'm not talking about that, but the, the possession is nothing more than possession of data, right? Like ones and zeros. It's definitely a serious crime, but it's not a violent crime against a person. However, I don't know many of those dudes that get arrested that one, the other thing they like other than child porn is guns. And two, very few of them go down without a fight, which is why they typically serve those warrants at three o'clock in the morning. And because those dudes do not fuck around. And uh, a couple of my teams, more than a couple, uh, they've bit some, some of those dudes. So, and that's an isolated thing. And I think there's the analysis that goes into that has to do with the arrest team and with the, the detectives that are running it and what inf- when until they have on this dude or this person, I assume it's a male, but that's another case that, but yeah, if you're a new canine handler, dual purpose, Graham, even go back before Graham and look at Roshan. Um, which is the case, kind of the foundation case for Graham, which is where they had that substantive due process thing where they had this like checklist of shit that they went down to see if it quote unquote shocked the conscience and to it's 2024 and somewhere there is an attorney in this country drafting emotion that is using the language from those cases right now. So you at least need to be familiar with them, even though they're no longer even really talked about because of, we have Graham that kind of supersedes them, but those arguments are still recycled over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And one that comes to mind too is, uh, Gates versus Chew. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which there was the two chew cases, right? So there was the mm-hmm. Oakland chew and then there was the Gates chew and the Gates chew is an interesting one. Um, I have a thing that I give my guys, um, about like what is reasonable and what is not reasonable. Um, so when I give them like the cliff notes version of these cases and the chew case is one of those that kind of, it came post post, uh, Kerr versus West Palm Beach. It came post Kerr. Mm-hmm. So it it kind of is one of those cases that I think if it had been redone, like in current times, or even if if Kerr wasn't around, that the outcome probably would have been a little different, but it didn't. So, you know, I don't really care. I mean, Ninth Circuit loves to say that now. Like if they had had the option to do Robinette versus Barnes, that's the other case if you're a dual right. person that you need to listen to or that you need to know is Robinette versus mm-hmm. Barnes that they would come to a different conclusion. And I'm like, yeah, no one cares because like, <laughs> there's nothing you could do about it now. But but Robinette is the other case that you should know, um, right. which is the case that establishes that dog bites are non-lethal. And it's been cited. It's a Sixth Circuit case, but it's been cited. Shit, I'd lost count. I stopped counting in like 2020, right before COVID. I stopped like kind of keeping track of it because it was in the thousands of times that it's been cited. And it, it basically, so what I'd have been, if you're listening to this, you don't know, like... It, this dude broke into a car dealership and they sent a dog in to bite him and it bit him in the neck. Um, the sixth circuit and it killed him. The sixth circuit said that, you know, that wasn't the intention of the handler, which is right. I mean, you know, the, the knuckle dragger, like cliff notes version of that is there isn't a canine handler alive that has a dual purpose dog that sends them to bite somebody thinking the outcome of the outcome is death. If that were the case, would they just shoot him? I mean, that's, and that is ultimately what we're, (laughs) so, it has been tried over and over and over and over and over again, 19 times, actually. There are 19 other cases after it that have said that it is word for word, police service dogs are not lethal use of force. There is another attorney in this country right now, tonight, drafting a, a, drafting a motion that he is going to file tomorrow morning on Monday that's saying that dog bites are lethal. It's a lethal use of force us is excessive. And they're going to continue to do it over and over and over again. But I, every district in the country has 
at least one of those where they say it's not. Um, and it's in my presentation for all my handlers where I'm like, but it, it's to the point now where, I mean, it's just not a lethal use of force. It's just not. I mean, it isn't. So, but yeah. But the two cases, um, an interesting one um, from the outing aspect and from the um, continued encouragement thing, mm -hmm. you know, that's the one that where they talk about in, and I mentioned it in the HRD uh, seminars at the end. I think it's at the end. I don't remember exactly where I mentioned it, but it's the one that says the continued encouragement can be considered uh, an excessive time on, on a bike could be considered a constitutional violation if it was viewed at a certain point in time or if it, depending on the other factors of the case. So it, because they left the dude on and that was the one where he, the guy, they were searching a, like a boat yard or something and they sent the mm -hmm. dog in off leash and it took forever to get to him. And yeah. On the detection side, what would you say? So we need to understand there's a ton of cases. Um, yeah. So Illinois versus Cabalas is the big one. And then Rodriguez is another one. Obviously we also want to deal with Florida versus Harris and Florida versus Jardines. Um, so the big overarching thing is you need to understand is that a canine sniff of a vehicle is not a search. Like just because you sniff the outside of the vehicle is not a search. They have whittled that down and applied that to all kinds of other things. Um, but then Florida versus Harris and then Cabalas is another one that's kind of a biggie. And there's a ton of cases that um, aren't related to dogs that do a bunch of like search condition things that... Um, have to do with how we get in and out of cars. York versus class is one that I that just kind of comes off the top of my head. And it's a case where they didn't really make a constitutional determination, but a sheriff's deputy, or it didn't really matter, a police officer stuck their hand into a car to move a piece of paper so that they could read a VIN number. And they determined that that was a violation. Mm. And now they didn't make a determination at that hearing, but it was an interesting you know, and that was, I think, in 1980. It's an old case. It's 1980-something, late 80s, um, or maybe early 90s or something. It's an older case. But, you know, fast forward to this year, we had the case in Idaho. And this is an interesting, this is an interesting thing because there is a national certifying body in this country that wants you to put dogs in cars. Mm -hmm. And so the Idaho case for the, did I ever send you that body cam video by the way? Yes. yes. Okay. So you've seen it, right? Like I got it from, I actually have the body cam from that case in Idaho where the dog touched the car and the state Supreme court of Idaho vacated the um, sentence of the dude that was convicted of narcotics uh, because the dog touched the car. They, the courts have made it really, really clear that they do not want you inside the vehicle. If you don't have a reason to be inside the vehicle, right? If we can't articulate something, right? If there's something in plain sight or whatever the hell it is, they don't want you in there. Like York versus class is the one that just comes to mind because it's not dog related. It's just that dude suck his hand in there so he could read a VIN number. And they're like, uh, nope, that, that was, nope, can't do that. So like by extension, right? We don't want the dog in the car. And I don't know why they do that. Like mm -hmm. I've asked them multiple times. And the funny thing is the people that are master trainers to this organization across the country don't fall in line with each other, which mm -hmm. is wild to me. Like you'll have dudes in like Pennsylvania that I talk to that are part of the organization. are like, no, we don't train that. And then I know guys in, for example, in Ohio that mm -hmm. will say, oh, 100%, you have to put them in the car. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why? Like, what difference does it make? Because we have, you know, a whole host of cases that say that we don't have to do that. And I don't, unless you like can't find it, you've already got, the car that impound and you've already torn it apart and you're having trouble locating it or something. 
for narcotics guys also Pennsylvania versus Mims and Maryland versus Wilson. They're not canine cases, but God bless. Get people out of the goddamn car. I don't care that they don't want to get out. <laughs> like, yeah. It baffles me to this day about the whole safety perspective. Well, it's a safety thing. And then there's some other things that I'm not going to talk about on a podcast, but there's things that it's a safety thing more than anything else. Um, but I don't, uh, we have a fairly large um, tribal agency here that lost a $2 million lawsuit, or I think it was two, it was a lot of money. It was in the millions, like low millions. It doesn't matter. Like once it's a lot of money. They left people in the car and they ran the dog and the driver like made a decoy noise apparently at the dog and he reaches up and smags and snags her in the face. Mm. And right, obviously not a good bite. <laughs> no. So, but get him out of the fucking car. Like, and I get that question. They're like, well, you know, they don't want to. Like, I don't care if they don't want to. It is a lawful order. They have reasonable suspicion. They ha- like, they've articulated to the point where they're going to run the dog. It's a safety thing. Get him out of the fucking car. It's Mems and Wilson. I still have DAs. To, it's 2024, and I talked to somebody a couple weeks ago. Can you get him out of the car from that? Yes, get him out of the fucking car. If you're listening to this, Mems and Wilson, like if your patrol sergeant says, oh, you can't get him out of the car. Yes, you can. Get him out of the car. Get him out of the car. I don't care. They're not under arrest or being detained. Like it's not a, it's it's a safety thing more than anything else. And we teach all of our guys not to search cars with people in them. So, and to, to, I mean, I don't, and this is not even canine related. I just don't know where the, the, the gap is. Um, like why there's such a fuck. And I, well, I take that back. I do because you know, you've got the people that are traveling, not driving or whatever, fucking oh, yeah. constitutionalist guys. But it, I, it's ridiculous. It's like, get them out of the fucking car. <laughs> it is what it is. So understanding that a search is not a search or that a sniff is not a search. Uh, records you need to understand. Florida versus Harris, Florida versus Jardines for the those guys. Rodriguez not extending the stop or, well, understanding what conditions extend a stop i'll put it that way and how to articulate that so you don't create a rodriguez violation because that's the first thing they're going to go after um and then uh yeah mims and wilson get them out of the car like like, yeah just it get them out end of story nice good advice absolutely so what's on tap for you you said you're getting ready to start a handler school besides police dogs gold coast canine sells canine home protectors Gold Coast Canine trains and develops top-tier home protection dogs that leverage their specialized security and protection training to keep their home and family safe. Each home protection dog is hand-selected and goes through a rigorous screening process prior to training to determine their natural physical and mental aptitudes. This in-depth evaluation ensures they have the ideal temperament and work ethic to create the perfect family companion and home protector. The canine home protectors are thoroughly trained in obedience, agility, barking on command, searching a residence for intruders, and searching, monitoring outdoor perimeters. The canine home protectors are sociable and vigilant. Their concierge service offers regularly scheduled maintenance training, annual refresher, home visits, veterinary care, and board and train while out of town. Gold Coast Canine Home Protector is also well socialized with other dogs, humans, and animals of other species to ensure they are extremely well-balanced. You can think of the Gold Coast Canine Home Protectors as family companions with added abilities. Check out goldcoastcanine.com for a full list of training offerings. Also, follow Gold Coast Canine on all social media platforms. Remember to use the GCK910 discount code for 10% off Gold Coast Canine merchandise. 
we just finished our first week up and oh. um yeah so i've got three more weeks with these guys so they'll be here tomorrow and early tomorrow morning and uh, i'm gonna do the powerpoint thing for them tomorrow the big deal uh they're they're long our class day i don't like doing a ton of classwork if i don't have to because you don't learn how to handle a dog sitting and listening to me talk about fucking random ass cases from 1970 like that's not how you learn to be a canine handler so but we have to do it but you so, can bounce it off their eardrums well and that's what i tell them right like so the first day of class i'm like this is what a change behavior is this is what tfr is this is what all these things this is these terms mean everything else and they get all this other documentation from me from um like uh, utah post has done a great job with the behavior change makers well wendell no right. right so even getting the the they're into their heads the difference between a trained final response and a change of behavior and then so they're experience they hear me say it then they read some documentation and then they sit through all the presentations and they see it again and then they hear me talk about it even more all the time so by the time they're done with class they've been exposed to it a lot so they're good and you know our guys are usually pretty good um about being proactive and you know using the correct wording and the correct terminology and reports and correcting supervisors and correcting professionally about how, how to use the words correctly and what they mean and what they don't mean because there's a lot of nuance a lot of and i think a lot of people come into this thinking like a handler school thinking oh uh, yeah it's high speed shit i'm going to hunt bad guys and we're going to track and this that and the other i'm like no it's repetitive and you're going to do about a million dope runs and like yeah oh one other case i forgot to mention um you need to know or well not case but just i mean you can read us versus jordan from the 10th circuit but the difference between single and double blind and what that means and how you document it and if you're a detection handler or even if you're not a detection handler if you're running building searches as well for, for dual harvest guys but what single and double blind testing mean and don't mean um and be able to ask it we give um all of my guys i actually ended up getting a um a list from the dark side um from plaintiff attorneys um as a symposium thing in i think texas uh, where they had a bunch of um fucking you know sharp teeth assholes that sue police departments uh, but i managed to get my hand on a list of these predicate questions that they like ask attorney or that they ask canine handlers during depositions and during like trials and stuff and like how to prepare for them and like how to ask the question. So I give all that stuff to my handlers and I'm like, you should mm -hmm. be able to answer these at the end of school. <laughs> and most of the time they can, they're really good at it. And they're, you know, so it has nothing to do with running the dog and, you know, fighting a dude at three o'clock in the morning, just beat the shit out of his girlfriend. It just has to do with being able to say, okay, I've, you, they can do that. Like I, our guys do that. But then I'm like, now you need to be able to write this correctly and be able to defend how you took action, what you've done, and then if it comes to it down the line, you know, it should be defendable. And I happened, one of my guys, the dog's now retired. He's not dead yet. But um, one of my handlers just had a case pop up and the plaintiff attorney kind of uh, chose to go a different route because the report was so well written. Um, and it's been years since that happened. So nice. then since the initial stop happened. So and I credit that to, you know, Patrick's great handling, his great report writing, his great attention to detail. I um, mean, like I said, he's not even a canine handler anymore, but it popped up. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Nice. Very good. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down with us and, yeah. and just chat. We uh, we send some text messages back and forth and share some videos. We actually have been using the same vendor here for the last few years. Yeah. And uh, I actually reached out to him. It's it's funny. I 
I'm always hesitant to to let them know that I'm looking because then I know that I'm going to be getting lots of communication, which I don't <laughs> mind the communication. I love the communication, but <laughs> I just <laughs> when I'm ready, I'm ready. Right. I tell him like he knows what I like, and I'm like, if you come across a special one, you let me know. I'm, well, you I'm can like have seven. I'm, I'm, oh, it's just special ones. I call them my friend dogs. Anytime he calls me or texts me, he's like, "My friend, I need to talk to you." I'm like, "Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> what, what is this?" Yeah. He's like, yeah. "Yo, this is a great dog, but you, like, you just gotta like. There's some there's some rules." I'm like, "Okay, yeah." And they turn out to be great dogs. Um, well, that's great. You guys already so, handled them, so you you know what you're yes. handing out. Yes. Yeah, I can't just give a chainsaw to a green handler. Uh, yeah, that's what these are. They're the, the my friend dogs are those. My friend, he, he's serious. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. He's serious about not liking this. I'm like, okay, like he's serious about it. Okay. <laughs> uh, when the vendor says he's serious, you didn't take that under advisement. Yeah, that's, you yeah. learn that very early on. Be careful what you ask for. You just you might never say, "I want the toughest dog you have." No, no. Well, because then if they send you one that sucks, they're like, "Oh, this is what you think tough is," and then, <laughs> right? Or the other side of that is they send you what you ask for, yeah, and then you want your money back or you want a replacement, and they're like, "What? This is what you asked for, bro? Like, what do you want me to do?" So, um, right. yeah, there's, and you know, he's a good dude. He knows what I like. So, yeah. yeah. For sure. Again, thanks for for taking time with us. Yeah, especially especially since you have a class in the morning. Thanks a lot, Ted. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no problem at all, guys. All righty. We'll go ahead and sign off. All right, we'll see you. Have a good one, man. Be safe. You too. Thanks. All right, Howard Young. Nice podcast, huh? A lot of good information. Uh, If you're a new handler or even if you're uh, somebody with a lot of experience, those are good cases to put uh, put in your training logs and uh, are, are your memory banks to say, hey, I need to pull these up and uh, be able to articulate, you know, when and why what you're doing? Yeah, he bounced a lot of uh, cases off of our eardrums. If he you're did. not familiar with those, then you you probably should look them up. Um, if you've been to a legal updates canine class, you probably should be familiar with some of those. Absolutely. Well, what do, what do we have on our sampling so for this evening? Tonight sir? we have Willet, and the- that's a tasty bourbon. It is. Uh, it's the first time I've ever had it. I was able to find it when I was up in New York and uh, flew it back in my suitcase. And uh, Lisa said, will it make it or not? Uh, <laughs> 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 it made well, it. I mean, it's, so it's, it's, if it. you haven't seen it, it's a very cool looking bottle. It is a cool looking bottle. Uh, All right. Very good. Well, here's to the hair of the dog that bit you, my friend. Absolutely. Good to see you. Mm, Good to see you too, sir. Thanks so much, you guys, for following along, supporting us, and listening to these wonderful conversations that Howard and I are just blessed to have each and every day. We'd like to thank and support all of our first responders, police, fire, EMS, and our military for once again holding the line, keeping us safe. Stay safe, brothers and sisters. We love you, God bless, and God bless America.